now entering the Phantom Squad Podcast. Enjoy the madness. Hey everyone, this is another episode of the Phantom Squad Podcast. My guest today is author and writer John Jackson Miller. How's it going? Hey, I'm doing fine. How are you? Doing good, doing good. Now, the first thing I wanted to ask you, I know you've uh, worked in a lot of different franchises. What are your uh, top fandom franchises for your own geekdom? <laughs> There's too many to name. Uh, you know, I have, a, I have a whole second building for my comic books, so I, I, I've, got a, I've got a lot to go around. Um, you know, I tend to primarily work for the stuff that I'm most interested in, so, I mean... You know, when I, when I was at Marvel, uh, you know, I did Iron Man, which uh, which was a blast, and that was that was before the movies, so it was before he got as it was. Uh, you know, Star Wars, obviously, uh, Star Trek, uh, I've been doing lately. Uh, I just did a I did a, a book for uh, Battlestar Galactica's 40th anniversary. Uh, you know, that's that's all been uh, been great stuff. Uh, I think generally it doesn't work if you're not a fan of the thing that you're uh, writing about. Um, you know, because the people who are the fans, the people who have been, re- you know, watching the shows or whatever for years, well, they can obviously tell uh, if you don't get it. Uh, so, I mean, and uh, and you can study up on it. Uh, you know, you can, you know, they can brief you. They can send you all sorts of documents and everything. You know, I mean, when I did the, the Mass Effect uh, comics, uh, you know, I, they sent me a, you know, the, the, the Bible for the universe uh, and everything about it, uh, but it could not, you know, really, you know, uh, paper over the fact that I never got more than about a third of the way through the game. So <laughs> if I if I had, it probably would have been better, uh, or, or rather, you know, not that it was bad, but it was just it, it would have been easier for sure. Yes, awesome, awesome. Now, uh, I know uh, when you were at the con that I met you at, you did a lot of, uh, you were working on some Star Wars books, and uh, I know you're one of your first ones that I read was the Knights of the Old Republic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was another case where I only got partway through the first video game, uh, but, uh, you know, I had uh, I had folks uh, helping me out, and, uh, and, of course, you can also, you know, see the, the cutscenes from video game or all on YouTube and everything. Uh, that was a case where, um, as well, they they said, we want to set something using the Knights of the Old Republic name, but it doesn't really have to be on top of the game. Uh, and so I said, well, here's what I'll do. I'll set my story seven years before. Uh, and that way we can meet some of the characters that you'll meet in the game uh, every so often. But otherwise, we got to tell an independent story, uh, a story that didn't uh, you know, rely on your having played the game or anything uh, and in fact if you had played the game had played the game uh, you know I was able to toy with uh, readers minds a bit uh, because they thought they knew what was coming uh, and that was one of the conceits of the uh, of the comic uh, was you know, this is about a group of Jedi uh, telepaths Jedi fortune tellers that think they know the future uh, and they have done a terrible thing because they think they know about this future that's coming. And of course, if you're uh, somebody who, well, you already knew what the future was. Uh, and uh, but they could be wrong, and you 
part of the future they were talking about. Well, uh, so yeah, I mean, that series gave us kind of the chance to do uh, the the Star Wars prequels uh, over in a certain way because again, in the prequels, you know, you already know what's going to happen to Anakin Skywalker. You know what's going to happen to some of these characters. You just don't know how. Uh, you know, here there was just a little bit more doubt about, uh, you know, what was going to happen to these characters. You know, was Zane going to become Darth Nihilus or uh, Darth Sion, one of these other characters? Well, I mean, you know, we get three years into the book and, and, and Griff tells everyone, uh, or at least tells one of the seers that, you know, he was never going to become one of those people. And if you had been reading carefully, you would have figured that out. Uh, and uh, but but that's that's kind of that's kind of that's kind of an advantage that we had there. We were able to tell uh, you know, this story that was you know, able to go in the directions that it wanted to go. And at the same time, we were able to draw some characters here and there. Uh, Admiral Karath, uh, you know, Cartho Nassi, we brought those characters in from the video game. Uh, and and I think we you know we made good use of them. It wasn't just a stunt. Awesome, awesome. Uh, now I know I know there's a lot when it comes to that, especially with the rights with Lucas Films and all that. Is any of it? Is it all just ideas that the company has and they give to you, or is it any of the like, hey, do you have a fan fiction you want to make your own thing? Well, that was that was entirely mine. But again, you know, you can't write fan fiction and get them to publish it. Uh, you know, the, if I were to say to them, hey, I've already written a story, can I write it? That wouldn't have happened. That would never have worked. What they what they did is they, they approached me and they said, write a story in this time frame, go nuts, do what you want to do, but it's got to feel like Star Wars and it can't trample over anything else that we've got planned or or, you know, uh, contradict anything they've done before. Uh, and for the most part, that's what most of my tie-in stories have been. Um, you know, uh, there are some stories that have uh, more involvement from the studio than others. Uh, you know, when I wrote the, you know, the Star Wars New Dawn uh, novel, uh, that tied into the Rebels TV show. So uh, Dave Filoni and the other producers of the Rebels series you know, got to, you know, give me, uh, you know, what they showed me what they were going to do in the series, but they also, uh, got to make a couple of suggestions and, uh, and they also read the plot and made notes, uh, as I was going forward, but it's still, you know, 98% mine. Uh, the same sort of deal goes on, uh, with the work that I do with Star Trek currently. Uh, you know, I've just done my second novel that's come out for, uh, Star Trek Discovery, uh, where uh, in both cases, you know, I work with uh, Kirsten Beyer, who is in the writer's room of the TV show, uh, and, you know, she makes suggestions as to, you know, this would be a good thing to, to explore, this thing would be, uh, you know, it, problematic, it would, it, would, uh, it, it would cause us to collide with something else. Yeah, you know, I just go from there, and um, you know, 97, 98, 99% in most cases uh, is mine. Uh, I'm probably least happy writing a tie-in story when I don't have much control at all. Uh, you know, I mentioned video games. Video games, uh, you, know, you know, the video game comics I've been doing and stories I've been doing, you know, very frequently they're still working on the next part of the video game while I'm working on the, the comic book. 
so it gets to be more complicated than uh, if I'm writing about something that's in production currently, like a TV show or a movie or a video game, that also gets complicated because it's kind of a moving target that you're working with. Um, and, uh, and then you know, the extreme end of that is something like, uh, you know, I wrote the adaptation for Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull uh, in comic book format. And in that case, I was you know, strictly limited to what happened in the movie. Uh, or what was going to happen in the movie, because they had only started shooting it the day that I read the script, uh, to, <laughs> to, uh, to do my work on it. And, you know, so the only parts of, you know, that graphic novel that are really me is choosing how to stage the scenes that appeared, you know, which lines went in. Uh, and, you know, uh, uh, I, I, I put in a narrator. I don't usually use a narrator, but the narrator gave me more of a voice in the story than I would have had. Uh, and in fact, probably the only contribution that I make uh, to that story is having the narrator explain something which is a plot hole in the movie. So, <laughs> uh, which, uh, which I perceive as a plot hole in the movie anyway. Uh, and, and they let it go, and it, and it went out that way. Uh, uh, but it, it felt like it felt like something that needed to be explained, and so I explained it, and, and there you go. Awesome, yeah, so you're like, I'm going to use this narrator to kind of poke a hole without getting in trouble. <laughs> well, it's not so much poke a hole, it's, it's, it's fix a hole. Um, you watch that movie, and, you know, it, it, I assume most of, most of your listeners have seen it, but um, Indiana Jones, a major plot point early in the movie is that he loses his job because... The FBI thinks he's a communist, uh, and because of other people that he has worked with and knows. And at the end of the movie, he's not only got his job back, but a promotion. Um, and you watch the movie, and you say, "Well, how did he get his job back? Because nobody saw the lost city that he, you know, goes to visit. Yes. Nobody knows what happened except for." Um, you know, uh, his, his girlfriend, his son, and the crazy professor. Uh, and, you know, it, it's, I, I said, well, okay, uh, probably the FBI or the CIA was tailing the Russians in the jungle uh, in, in, uh, in, uh, in Peru, and that's where they, uh, you know, they, they, they really saw something, and they confirmed that, okay, yeah, he's, he's not a Russian. Yes, I know that you wrote a Kenobi book. Uh, were you in talks with Dave? Because I know you were with, with Dave Filoni. Uh, with anything to do with Mandalorian or the upcoming Kenobi series? Well, the Kenobi novel uh, was written uh, in 2012 for release in 2013. And actually, that novel was actually, the plot was written in 2006. Uh, so we're talking quite a long time before... Yeah, even net, you know, Netflix is still sending out DVDs by mail. Yes. <laughs> um, so we're not you know, we're not even thinking about that. Uh, although the reason that the, it was actually going to be a comic book, it was going to be a graphic novel. I was I was doing I was going to do an original graphic novel uh, called Ben uh, for uh, Dark Horses. Uh, it was uh, it was uh, going to be for either Star Wars's. 
uh, 30th anniversary or Dark Horse's uh, 20th anniversary, some combination of both, because I think both of them were in 2007. And I wrote the plot, and it was good, and uh, they had me revise it, and it got longer, and they had me revise it, and it turned out to be 50 pages. And I said, there's no way in the world uh, we could actually do a comic book out of this because it's going to be too long. Um, it, you know, there's a whole stretches where not much happens. Uh, and uh, two things happened then. Uh, one is uh, that my editor got uh, moved from the Star Wars office to the Indiana Jones office, and he asked me to write that Indiana Jones graphic novel instead of, of Kenobi. And the other reason that we, we didn't do it at that time was because, speaking of TV series, um, there was a rumor about that... Um, George Lucas was going to do a TV show for um, for ABC, even though Disney didn't own uh, you know, Star Wars at that time. But they were talking about they were talking about it with ABC. The rumor was he was going to do a TV show set in what they call the Dark Times, which is that period in between Episode Three and Episode Four. And you know, we just sort of looked at each other and said oh, well, we really don't want to collide with anything. Uh, and so when it came, along, when it came to 20, uh, 2012 and they were looking to do novels based on some of the original characters, uh, I brought Kenobi off the shelf and said, well, that TV show's not happening, or at least it hasn't happened. Yes. Uh, and uh, and, and so, so let's go ahead with this. Uh, and they, they were all for it, and, and we went ahead with it. And within like a month of my turning in and submitting and getting the first plot approved, Disney bought Star Wars and started talking about making movies about things. And so if you'll recall, the very first movie, the first set of rumors that was out there was that they were going to do a Kenobi movie. And I started to panic again. <laughs> <laughs> every time, every time Edwin McGregor uh, you know, talks about, I'd like to play this role again i i start saying oh gosh i hope they don't you know deep six my novel because you know they can't you, they need to they need to make sure that obi-wan kenobi is is not uh is is you know, i don't write anything about him that's not going to fit uh but again the novel comes out and the novel goes through you know lots of printings and and has, has been out for years uh you know every three four months the rumor would come up and my social media mentions would explode that they're doing a movie or something and then it shifts from doing a movie to doing a tv show a streaming uh, and then that finally happens um that that announcement comes uh and i think i think i was actually uh in, in i was actually in uh, in in I was on an airplane getting ready to go to uh, uh, to uh, a, a convention in Detroit, and I just happened to have a copy of the book with me, and so I just took a photo of the book and said, "Well, if I can't tell you anything about this. I'm sitting on a I'm sitting on an airplane. Uh, even if I could tell you anything, but if I knew anything, I wouldn't be able to say it. And if I don't know anything, I wouldn't tell you that I don't know anything. Uh, but you know, every time every time this comes up." You know, this, the, 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 uh, the book sales go up, and uh, so here's what it looks like. Here's the link. Go. Uh, and, and we, you know, we, they sold a bunch more copies. Um, you know, and, and I, uh, obviously, if I, haven't, if I haven't made it clear by now, 
you know, if I knew something, I wouldn't be able to say it. And if I don't know anything, that would also not be good for me to say. Uh, because, you know, the as they say in science class, or as they say, as they say in, in, uh, in science, you know, even a negative result is a result. And yes. There's, there's, <laughs> I, I have no desire to you know, be part of uh, a headline anywhere. Uh, you know, John Jackson Miller is or is not. You know, yes. That's, you know, that's, that's not my place. And, you know, I never, ever talk about books that, that I'm doing that haven't been announced yet um, uh, or, or, or really anything. Uh, it's not my place. It's, it's uh, so whether it's books or comics or anything else, you know, there's publicists that, that deal with all of that. And, uh, and uh, no, no, what I, what I, what I say always with regard to Obi-Wan Kenobi is more Obi-Wan Kenobi is always good. And yes. So, uh, <laughs> so and, and, you know, I did get a chance to characters, uh, or at least one character from that, uh, when we did a, a book called uh, Star Wars from a Certain Point of View for the 40th anniversary. And so uh, the Tuscan Raider that's in, uh, that's in Kenobi, uh, you know, that character gets a story in there. Uh, and uh, I have a story in the book that is uh, coming out, uh, I guess it's in November. Uh, it's the Empire Strikes Back version of that, where it's 40 stories that tie in with the Empire Strikes Back. And once again, I cannot tell you which characters characters I wrote about. Uh, <laughs> they, they, uh, they are... They're going to do a big announcement about all of that, uh, and uh, and when they do, I'll be able to talk about it. But otherwise, not not my not my not my not my job. Awesome, awesome. Yes, I just actually speaking of that movie, my local theater just did a uh, a re-release of Empire Strikes Back, and yeah. seeing that being a being 26 myself, I was not old enough to see it when it came out, and then I wasn't old enough to see it when they did the re-releases. Uh, back in the yeah. early 90s. So it was so great to just see that movie on the big screen yeah. like it was planned to be. Yeah, I, I think I saw it uh, I saw it twice as a kid in the theater, and then I saw the special edition when it came out uh, in 97. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, where I live, Wisconsin, we're having some very, very, very bad pandemic problems right now. So uh, I... I keep driving by the theater and I keep getting tempted to go see because I see a pyro on the marquee. Uh, but yeah, it's just, just not, not, not a, not a, this is not the place for it right now. So, uh, maybe, maybe they could do it another year. Yeah. It, yeah. I saw, we just kind of lucked out me and my best friend. It was me, him and his girlfriend. We were just the only ones in the theater. I was like, okay, this worked out. It's all only us three. <laughs> you know, they, they've, uh, they've, they've done surveys and asking what would make people more likely to, to go to a theater again. And, and most people are, are, are most people just say, just plain no. But the, the one category that is, is closest to that, uh, where people would be most positive is, is if they could rent out the theater themselves, uh, just, just for their own viewing group. And I have gone to movies that were so bad where I was the only person in the theater, uh, or, or, well, I, I, I'd been a movie reviewer at one point, and so, you know, I, I was always supposed to be the only person there, uh, and that was okay, but, but no, I remember going to a movie, and I'll, I'll spare the movie by saying, not saying what it was, but I was the only person in the theater, and while I was in the theater, they turned the movie off, because they thought, they thought, they thought nobody was in the room, um, but uh, that was depressing. 
Oh my gosh. Yes, it was it was awesome, especially for me and him. I, I looked over and we were sat up at the same time. It's the part where Luke's on the thing, hold on, you like, no, it's coming. You're like, here's the line, it's coming to I am your father, and we're just at the same time we both just mouthed it and his girlfriend goes, Yeah, I can definitely see you're both fanboys of this franchise. <laughs> Yes, it was great. Now, uh, one of my friends wanted me to ask you about the Halo book series that you've done as well. Yeah, I did. Uh, I worked on Halo in three different areas of it, uh, and uh, in the first two cases, I, you know, again, what I, as I'm mentioning, what I've said before, uh, you know, what I try to do when it's uh, a, a video game franchise in particular, because there's a lot of moving parts that are still in motion all the time. Uh, I will try to do something where the footprint is really small, where it doesn't involve um, anything's going to run into anything else. So I did a prose story for the uh, the Gallows uh, book called, um, I, I think it's called Fractures, I think it is. I'm looking at my shelf. Uh, yes, Fractures, uh, Halo Fractures, uh, which is tales from all different ports and parts of the timeline. Uh, so I did a story with uh, one of the Forerunners, and it was just one of the forerunners, and it's a hundred thousand years before the, uh, or however many years before the, uh, the game. So, uh, you know, that really wasn't going to run into anything. Uh, and then uh, I did a a story in a hardcover called um, uh, Halo Tales from Subspace, uh, and those were all stories that were set after Halo Guardians. Um, and again, what I did was I did a, a story about. Uh, a group of soldiers who uh, were in they were in interstellar flight when the events of that game transpired and basically their ship stops working and they're stranded uh, and so they have kind of an Apollo 13 thing going on there uh, that, that happens with them uh, and then the most recent thing I did is they did a, a tie-in uh, comic series for Halo Wars 2, uh, which is called uh, Rise of Atriox. Atriox being the, the the villain, the big bad that you fight in uh, in that game. Uh, and that was something where there were several authors uh, that were all working on um, single-issue stories about this Atriox character, basically establishing who he was and who he turned into. Uh, that is... That is, as I said, that's really much closer on the spectrum to, you know, I, I, it's much more of a 50-50 thing there where uh, there's only a kinds of stories they can tell that will fit in only a few places in the timeline. Uh, and so, you know, there's, there's somewhat less for me to do in that case. Uh, but, you know, doing this stuff with the video games is still fun. I mean, in, 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 in some cases where you'll see, uh, you know, I had uh, two different graphic novels I did for Mass Effect where they did DLC sequels to the game, uh, where you could actually, uh, in one of them, you could either kill or not kill the villain I created. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so that's a first. That's awesome. Yeah, my buddy, when I told them what uh, I was interviewing you, uh, they were like, wait, you mean the John Jackson Miller of the, and they named the titles. I was like, yeah, they're like, oh my God, you have to ask for me about the Halo games. I was like, I'll definitely ask. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, uh, 
I guess that that drifts in the territory of saying what I have planned and what I don't have planned. Uh, but I, I I'll just say it, it, it's the video game stuff is a lot of work uh, because if you don't, if you are not a, uh, I no, I, I'm not one of those people that says you have to have watched every episode of a TV show to write about it or or you know seen everything. It's just you know the the video games to really get a feel for them, uh, you got to play them. Uh, and uh, there is just so much detail that is layered into these things uh, that for somebody in my position, it's actually kind of harder to get to uh, in terms of doing research. Uh, people will put stuff on wikis. People will put cutscenes online and things like that. Uh, but, you know, I remember everything that happens in the first third of Knights of the Old Republic the video game very well. Yes, a lot of my friends who read your books and in me as well, like we've all agreed to like, man, I wish he would write for the video games because his stuff is better than the game. <laughs> I guess for you as being a fan, it was awesome seeing that as well, being a fan yourself. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was, that was uh, a rare treat. Awesome. Now, uh, with that, did you get to meet anybody like John Farvo, or is there anybody you've met through these books that you were either a fan growing up or just a fan of? Well, yeah. I mean, I had, uh, I had worked 
worked already. Uh, I started working uh, for the magazine Comics Buyer's Guide, uh, you know, 27 years ago. So I mean, not not just out of grad school, but uh, but it was my second job. So I you know I got to interview Stan Lee and and all of that uh, and uh, you know and, and and a lot of my a lot of my idols. Um, you know, I I tried to uh, I I tried to you know, maintain a professional distance you know, from, from fanboying over, over anybody if I could help it because, again, that, was, that wasn't my job. Uh, you know, I, uh, and, and before that, I had been a journalist, so I had uh, I'd, uh, I'd interviewed a lot of uh, other people. I, I actually discovered uh, a, a few weeks ago, I, I discovered the, the audio tape from when I interviewed Joe Biden in college. Oh my uh, gosh! It's like you just jumped into the TV guide of TV land. Yeah. It's just awesome. Exactly. Exactly. Now, your experience with Stan, since we have lost him recently, how how was your experience like just meeting basically one of the gods of comics, <laughs> being um, a comic book fan? When I first interviewed him, uh, and I don't know, I don't know how universal this is anymore because it it's, it goes back a bunch of years now. Um, uh, if you ever went to a big boy restaurant, uh, whether it was Frisch's Big Boy or Shoney's Big Boy or whatever it is, this was a restaurant chain that was around from the 1950s. It's still around today in some regions. But what they did was they had free comic books. Uh, there was a there was a there was a free comic book with the with the Big Boy character every uh, every uh, every month. Uh, and as a kid, I loved going to that restaurant not because of the food, but because I got this comic book. Comic book wasn't always great, but it was a free comic book, you know. I mean, come on. <laughs> um, and and uh, they did it for decades. They did over 500 issues of it. Uh, and I discovered uh, that he had written the comic for the very first year of its existence. Uh, it was a job that he did for Marvel uh, as just sort of a you know a, a corporate job on the side. Uh, and so I was able to call and interview him about that and get, dra- drag out his memories of this thing that nobody had asked him about in 40 40- So uh, And so 
that was cool. And then for his uh, 75th birthday, um, we did a um, we issued a comics buyer's guide where we solicited letters from uh, fans uh, to wish him a happy birthday to fill the magazine with. And uh, we got over a thousand and uh, you know, we couldn't print them all. And there was one from uh, one from Henry Winkler, the guy who played uh, Fonzie. There was a there was a letter from uh, George H. W. Bush, uh, and, and there was it was it was it was surreal and you know, original art that came in from some of the people that Stan worked with. Uh, Joe Sinat sent uh, sent a drawing. Uh, uh, Marie Severin uh, did the uh, did the art for our cover. Uh, it was it was amazing, and uh, I, and we were able to send that to him, and and uh, and then I meet him in an elevator in San Diego, uh, and say, hey, I'm the I'm the big boy guy in this magazine, <laughs> and he's well, thank you very much, true believer. It's a, it's a wonderful thing, and so that was that was cool. Yes, uh, he's he's one of those people that you would. You think that oh, he, this can't be how he really is. And when I met him at Dragon Con in 2012, that was like my first Dragon Con. And I was, I think, 15 at the time. And that he was my first big celebrity because I've always been a superhero fan. And I just I had a whole speech and I walked up and he just did the, you know, the same, the put his hand out, the hey there, true believer. And I lost it. And I was just the five year old me just shook his hand. Thank yeah. you so much. And. The person with me was laughing because we were walking off and my hands and the autograph was shaking. I was like, I've met the holy grail of my childhood existence. Oh, there you go. And he was just the sweetest guy. Like, he is definitely the legend that people see him as. Oh, I, 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 would, uh, I would definitely think so, yeah. It's, uh, uh, it's, it's. Uh, he's uh, he, he's he's great. Uh, you know, I've, I've I've just had positive experiences with uh, with most of these people. Jim Steranko, who was uh, behind Fury, uh, Agent of Shield, just absolutely it was absolutely charming. I mean, I and and you know, these people are generous with their time. Uh, uh, Dick Ayers, who used to do the Sergeant Fury comics in the '60s, uh, again, uh, you know, these people would write letters to you after. Yeah, back back in the days when people used mail. Uh, <laughs> yes. After after you started after after you started a correspondence with them, so that was just really cool. Yeah, I have a friend who has a story where he uh, does conventions. He's an author, um, Bobby Nash, and he talks about how he corresponds and would talk to George Perez, and George would talk to him every time he'd see him at a convention. He's like, "Hey, Bobby," and he's like, "I'm talking to a George Perez, but he's not seeing me as this. He's seeing me as another artist. He's not this big." guy which he thought was so cool that he looked at every artist yeah. as a, a, just another person yeah and, uh, and and particularly going to these shows I, tr I try to ask folks about stuff that they never get asked about um, because they they're they're having to answer the same thing over and over again usually uh, and that goes double for the TV show people I always try to I was trying to I try to bring out some project they did that Nobody ever asks about, or you know, ask ask them about their Broadway work. That that usually, you know, the theater work. They they go nuts for that. Um, yeah, I uh, probably one of my coolest celebrity experiences. Uh, there was a TV show in the in the '90s called Lois and Clark: The New Adventures of Superman, uh, where Lex Luthor was played by an actor named John Shea. 
uh, at Superman Celebration. I met him, and I didn't ask about Superman. I asked about when he played Bobby Kennedy uh, in a TV movie uh, where um, where Martin Sheen played JFK and he played he played Bobby and. I don't think anybody had ever asked him about it because he jumped out in front of the table and started reciting a speech from the TV show, <laughs> uh, which was actually one of Bobby Kennedy's you know, speeches, uh, in the voice. And I was like, man, I just, I, 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 had, I, I had not, I, I didn't have, I didn't have my phone doing video, but I was, that was just the coolest thing. I, it's, 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 uh, yeah, these, these guys, they, they, they and they they really love to be able to talk about they got the famous yes definitely so how was it working another guy that I'm I guess because I'm big into animation I like the the behind the scenes people how was it working with like Dave Filoni like I'm I'm a big Dave Filoni fan just from all his things that he's done well as I mentioned uh, you know I I did the the new dawn novel uh, with the consultation of the executive producers. Uh, he being one of them, uh, and I did a conference call with him about uh, about the book and you know, got his got his feedback uh, and tried to figure out how to actually fit you know what he needed uh, and what he wanted from the characters with uh, with uh, with what I did. And so uh, you know I think some of the genesis of uh, the way that I wrote Kanan. Uh, you know, as as sort of this uh, this uh, this guy who's uh, cut adrift, um, and you know he's kind of doing dangerous odd jobs uh, to get through life. Uh, that comes from uh, that comes from that, and also in particular uh, his relationship with Hera and how Hera sees him and vice versa. You know that comes from that as well. Uh, and you know when they told us that. Well, this process that I was part of uh, was actually, you know, it got a name. It was the Lucasfilm Story Group. And they told us that, you know, this would be the novel with which they would start from here and say everything from here on is canon. Uh, and, uh, and you know, I uh, I got, uh, you know, I, I, I got to be a part of a video about the EU and this change and everything that Timothy Zahn and I were part of uh, out at Lucasfilm. Uh, you know, Dave Filoni wrote the uh, foreword uh, to the novel, where he talks about it too. Uh, and uh, you know, I was uh, I was really delighted with that. And uh, and so yeah, it was, it was very cool. And I did I did a panel with them uh, on the novel as well. Sweet, yeah. He he seems like like I said he like I said he's one of us. He's George's right hand man, which we all wish we could be. <laughs> Now, have you ever been invited to or have gone to the Skywalker Ranch? Not Skywalker Ranch, uh, Lucasfilm uh, twice for both uh, the occasions I mentioned, the Indiana Jones uh, script and then uh, then to do the video for uh, the EU. Awesome. Now, is it like uh, the ranch? Does it have any like stuff in the building from the movies and... Uh, yeah, it, the, uh, it's, it is, but it's not even just those movies, but it's all the other things that Lucasfilm has worked on. Uh, so, or not just Lucasfilm, but uh, Industrial Light and Magic. Uh, so, um, that was actually a fun thing, just being there, walking around and looking at this and looking at that and saying, what the heck is this? Uh, there's this huge, uh, 
you know, mural, uh, not mural, but it's a huge map painting. And I look at it, I look at it the first time and I said, okay, I know what that is. I know what that is. I know what that is. And, and I just couldn't place it. And then you, know, you realize uh, it's Dulles Airport, the tarmac from the movie Die Hard 2. Uh, because Die Hard was shot, uh, Die Hard 2 rather, was shot at the Denver airport before it opened, the, the new Denver airport. Uh, and, you know, they, obviously that did not look like Dulles. And so there's this just huge, big painting of an airstrip and you're like, oh, hey, that's, <laughs> you know, that, today they would do that digitally, but that was, uh, that was 1990. So, uh, yeah, it's a different time. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I seen in a documentary about, like, how they used a big matte painting for the office scene in the original Tron film as well. Oh, yeah, that's that's kind of what they had. I mean, that's, that's what they had to use. And when you look at it, it's so cool when you go back, you're like, wait, that's not the real scene. You go, just the pure amazingness of those artists, of how detailed they could get so you could not even tell the difference of a painting from an actual well, room setting. Well, you know, even though that was before the internet, uh, where people could complain about things, uh, <laughs> the, uh, I, I remember 1990 was right about when the first book of film flubs came out. Uh, there, there was actually what's called film flubs and more film flubs where they, they would actually look in the movie and, with a fine tooth comb and say, Oh, well, you know, this, this is, uh, you know, uh, this is supposed to be, Metropolis, but uh, but Superman is is uh, at, at, at the phone booth is for Pacific Bell. Uh, they, you know, it's, it, they're, they're, there's there's something wrong in the scene. Uh, there, there's there's something erroneous there. Uh, this is in the shot that shouldn't be. Uh, you know, so so people were already starting to complain about you know those kind of problems uh, even back then. Uh, and, uh, and so they were trying to be as careful with them as possible and not make mistakes. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, digital just gave them another way to kind of fix things. Sweet. Now with, uh, artist wise, since you're mainly the writer, is there any artist that you have collaborated with that you either grew up, uh, reading or that you wanted to work with that you got to eventually work with as like to draw for you for your writings? I, you know, not, not so much draw the series I've worked on, although sometimes you know, you'll get covers. Uh, you know, one of the fun things was I did just did just do the uh, the 40th anniversary book for Battlestar Galactica, uh, and one of the covers that uh, Dynamite used uh, was a recolored version of uh, a Walt Simonson, uh, Walt Simonson uh, cover from the original Battlestar Galactica series. Uh, back in 1970, uh, 70, uh, 78, 79, that Marvel did, uh, and uh, that was really, really cool to see. So, yeah, I, it's, it's. I, I wish that I had uh, had more of a chance to write in the era where you know, the artists and the writers were in the same room. Uh, now we are often not even on the same continent. Um, oh my gosh. That would, well, that well, that was one thing that that was the case with the Battlestar Galactica series because uh, my artist uh, Daniel HDR, um, uh, he uh, he's he's in uh, in Brazil, and so you know everything's done by email and uh, me sending links at that. Uh, it's it's I, I 
we still have not met. It might have happened this year at uh, at uh, Dragon Con, where the book was was up for and actually won an award, which was kind of cool. Uh, but uh, but of course, we weren't even there to get the award because there was no convention this year. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that's like with those artists. They're just. I know, like, the older styles, a lot of people critique, but I just came into, like, a bunch of comics, and there's some of the original uh, Fantastic Fours, and they're all messed yeah. up in water damage, but I'm, I'm keeping them and framing the cover, because oh, yeah. my friend was like, why are you yeah. keeping that they're trash? I was like, these are original Jack Kirby's, like, I'm going to keep these because yeah. of what they are. I was like, just the sheer who drew them is why I want to keep them. They might not be worth anything as a book, but just to have his artwork in a frame. Because he just, that's one guy I just, uh, that a lot of people don't know that he did more than what people give him credit for. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, uh, it, definitely, uh, he was, uh, he was huge. And, uh, and one of the most important, possibly the most important artists in the history of comics. Yes, for sure, for sure. Now, for, uh, I'm a big Babylon 5 fan as well. What other uh, fandoms have you worked for? What would you, your dream uh, franchise would you like to work for, or do a novel or graphic uh, novel for? Uh, I was uh, I was a fan of Babylon Five, although it's been so many years, I don't I don't much remember it. You know, there are, there are shows that I would love to have done a, a, a you know a comic book for, uh, or you know, and maybe even still would, but. Uh, you know, it's just having somebody get the license for it, and then would anybody buy it? Uh, you know, one of my favorite science fiction series came out in the 1980s. Uh, it was uh, it was uh, an, an adventure series uh, called Max Headroom, and it used the character from the commercials and the talk show. Uh, but it was set in the future uh, in a in a world in which television networks control the world, uh, and it's, uh, it, you can find it streaming uh, here and there. Uh, Matt Frewer started the was the was the main character or start was the star of the show, uh, and uh, it was uh, it was just brilliant. Uh, there are all these cyberpunk ideas. They're in a show that was on ABC in 1987. That's just hard to believe. Uh, and uh, and uh, so you know. Nobody did any comics or novels for it back then, and the show didn't last that long. And uh, you know, it's still out there. If somebody wants to get the rights to it, uh, give me a call. <laughs> yes, for sure. Now, I see in your background as a collector as well. What would you say your your most prized possession collectible piece that you have? Oh, that's really that's really difficult. Um, you know, I, I collections are a lot of work. Um, you know, I, I spent years and years getting, uh, Iron Man organized so that I had every issue of it. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, when I actually wrote the comic book series, I had no problem actually finding, you know, the stories I needed. Uh, this was before, you know, Marvel Unlimited or anything where you could actually, you know, download the, uh, the. Uh, you know, bootleg comics weren't even really so much a thing back then. So, <laughs> so, uh, it, so yeah, I mean that that that's something that just took a a lot of work, uh, and and so uh, yeah, that's prized. Um, you know, some things you're mentioning, you know, having a, a comic book that's not very valuable, um, uh, but you know, what it is, it's important. 
No, I've got it on my wall. I've got a a copy of Giant Size X Men number one, which was the first you know new X Men uh, story. And you can't tell uh, if anybody would ever steal it, they would realize that it's not really worth a whole lot of money because the cover has been razored off. Oh. Uh, okay. <laughs> but, but but it's pressed, so you can't see that. Uh, and so I'm the only one who knows. No. <laughs> you're like, you think you're going to get $20,000 comic book. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, no, it's, well, and you know, hopefully, they, hopefully nobody will steal it, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's one of those things where it was the holy grail for so many years, and when I happened across it and realized uh, it was damaged, I said, well, yeah, it still works. Yeah, because that's mainly like you can read it online. You know the actual like I have the uh, the milestone edition from the nineteen nineties when yeah. they did those. I mean, a book like that. You know, people complain about comic books getting slapped, put in plastic. Uh, the comics that are, are really valuable like that, you really shouldn't be reading anyway while you're you know eating Fritos. Uh, oh <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's I uh, I had a friend uh, a coworker once who used to. Uh, used to keep these wonderful Silver Age comics, uh, you know, many from Jack Kirby, as you mentioned, uh, in, in the trunk of his car. Uh, and I, I, I said, I said, you know, the state should take your comics away, uh, <laughs> <laughs> just to protect them for the future. So, anyway, that's uh, uh, people can do what they want. Yeah, definitely. Want. I guess it's for me, like. A lot of mine are not worth a lot. I'm a cover guy. Like, I yes, I love the certain issues, but I'm like, if it's a cool cover, I want to display it because it's a cool cover. Like, somebody had this Understood. awesome idea. Understood. Understood. Well, let me uh, let me plug the uh, the books I've got out. Um, the uh, the as mentioned, the uh, from a certain point of view, the Empire Strikes Back that comes out in November. That is from uh, from Random House. Uh, their Del Rey is the imprint. Uh, they're doing an audiobook and they're doing uh, a hardcover. Uh, and uh, so there's that. Uh, the current book I have on the shelves is Star Trek Discovery Die Standing, which uh, tells what happens to the Emperor from the Mirror Universe uh, as she tries to do her first job for Section 31 in our universe, which is sort of the Starfle- Starfleet's version of the KGB, uh, the CIA, uh, as a secret agent, and uh, that's a lot of fun. Uh, that's available in ebook, uh, paperback, and also uh, a really, really good audiobook uh, for that. Uh, so, so that's coming out, or that's that's already out. Uh, and then just uh, all my other stuff is is online uh, or, or available. Uh, Farawaypress.com is my website. I also run the web which is, uh, historical sales figures for the industry, uh, and I'm a, as I speak, I'm in the middle of uh, getting the uh, the sales charts for the month of August online. So uh, again, lots of places to find me uh, on Twitter, JJM Far Away, uh, on uh, Facebook, uh, John Jackson Miller. This is John Jackson Miller, author of Star Wars and Star Trek novels, and I'm here on the uh, podcast saying. Enjoy the madness. You are now leaving the Phantom Squad podcast. I don't want to go.